Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Charles White. With Sarah Kelly Oler, Esther Adler is the co-curator of Charles White, a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The exhibition is the first major museum full-career survey of White's work in over three decades. It spotlights White's painting, drawing, and photographs, and includes archival material especially related to his mural practice. Charles White is on view at MoMA through January 13, 2019, when it will travel to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. The exhibition catalog, which is super, was published by the Art Institute of Chicago, which originated the show, and is distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for 34 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, artist Alida Cervantes discusses her work now on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. But first, Esther Adler on Charles White, after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016. to The first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade, this is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. Featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections, this landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a Wex Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. And we're back. Esther Adler, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. You know, there was a time in American art history, or maybe in art history more broadly, when it was a big deal for art historians to come up with unifying theories of artists' work, you know, to to identify a core tenant that was ever-present and that held an oeuvre together. And, you know, I think that's that's an eclipse. But I do think that in white, there's a pretty clear unifying thing, and that's the figure. So let's start with, with his interest in the figure. Where does Where does his interest in the figure come from? I think Charles White's interest in the figure comes partly out of his desire to make images that were widely accessible. 
and to audiences that didn't necessarily have access to the history of art, be that Western or from other cultures. And so I think he identified pretty early on that figures were a way to help communicate his message, whatever that message was. I think he was also one of those children who was just innately talented as an artist. I think he was really, really good at making figures at making them look like actual people. And then he kind of develops that skill through a lot of formal art training. So he's studying at the Art Institute of Chicago. He's going to the Art Institute itself to look at paintings. He's learning to draw from the model. He's teaching other people how to draw from the model. So I think I think his ability to create figures together with the fact that they were, again, really accessible to people he was interested in making art for was one of the reasons he was so drawn to that. And then I think he was incredibly committed and he just sticks with it. He decides that's what he wants to do. And he keeps doing it throughout the 20th century, even as there's kind of this move away from it in many circles. Why was it important for White that his work be accessible and accessible to to the broadest possible audience? I think he felt really strongly that art had a role to play in life. It wasn't just being made for decoration or for people's homes or or for museums even, but that art was his way of making a statement about the world, about a statement about things that needed to change or issues or, or celebration, celebrating the people around him and the wonderful things in life. And so I think that the best way to communicate, obviously, through your art is to make it available to people. And so because that idea of of art playing this role was so important, he really did focus on, again, making it accessible to people, not only in the terms of the imagery he was making, but also in terms of how it circulated. So not just making things that could be hung on the wall of a museum or a gallery, but being very open to having his works reproduced, to making illustrations for magazines, for books, making images for record covers, having them on television. He was really open to having the work everywhere. Yeah, politics were were never far away for White. So maybe as a way of detailing his his politics and how they were important to them to him were they constant across the three major cities in which he lived chicago new york and los angeles or or did his politics change from say the late 30s or the beginning of world war ii through to the end of his career I mean, Charles White was always black in America from the very earliest days of his life to the very end. So I think in many ways, his politics were shaped by his very real lived experience in this country. So I think he grows up in poverty with a single mom in Chicago, and he's very, very aware of uh, how things are different for him there, how he's being treated differently, how what he's being taught is is different than information he's finding on his own in um, branches of the Chicago Public Library, for example. And with that, I think, came, again, a real dedication to changing his situation, the situation of his friends and family, a sense that there was more for all of them and that it, you know, he would help fight to, to accomplish, to, to change things, I think, for all of those people. And that's something that I think he comes to very early on. And I think that is something that he remains dedicated to and really 
really sticks with the entirety of his life, which is quite amazing. I think an incredible accomplishment. I think what changes is his, both his age and his worldview, obviously, and also a little bit his status and what that allows him to do. So in Chicago, there's a lot of kind of ground roots community organizing in terms of helping to establish exhibition spaces and, and helping to teach other young artists who are his friends how to make work, kind of um, organizing on a very grassroots level. By the time he gets to New York, there's some of that still going on. He's involved, like, for example, with the George Washington Carver School, which sets out to educate people in Harlem of African-Americans on all kinds of things, economics, dressmaking, as well as art and other uh, creative impulses. But he's also at that point showing with a mainstream gallery on 57th Street, the ECA gallery. He's starting to get more attention from museums, from from collectors. And so I think as his status rises, he's also able to bring his political activism with him in that way. So he's making illustrations for leftist journals like Masses and Mainstream. He is allowing reproductions of his work to be sold to benefit the Committee for the Negro and the the arts, which was kind of like an adv- advocacy group, not only to help fund education for people to learn how to work in the arts, how to be, you know, filmmakers or how to work in television, but also um, with the ultimate goal of changing how African-Americans were shown in popular culture to changing the way they were perceived. Because of course, if you have black people behind the camera, that automatically has an effect on what you see in front of the camera. And obviously that's something we're still thinking about today. But so White is very early on committed to changing those things. And as he gets a little more money, a little more stature, he's able to change those those things as well. And then by the time he moves to Los Angeles, he's somewhat of a senior statesman in many ways. You know, he's made these key creative relationships in New York with people like Harry Belafonte, with Sidney Poitier. So he's on movie sets in LA. His work is being shown on television. Uh, Harry Belafonte is commissioning things for use in his own projects. He eventually becomes a teacher at the Otis Art Institute, and then he eventually becomes the head of the drawing department there. So students are coming to study with him. He has kind of a whole new generation of people that he can help influence. Influence isn't really the right word, but I think more support. People he can support and help understand that they can do what they want to do with their work, but that they have a responsibility to do something with it. That's Carrie James Marshall's language always. The show starts with kind of in the late 1930s when White is in his early 20s. He turns 20 in in 1938, and there's a drawing of John Brown in the show from that year. But the show really picks up steam in about 1940. You mentioned White's political interests. How do we see that manifesting itself both in the early work and in what he's interested in making in, 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 in the form his work takes in the early 40s? Again, I think that much of White's political activism and interest comes from what he's seeing in the world around him. And so because he's living in a poor community in Chicago, he's friends with many artists, none of whom have any money. He he sees the situation that people are living in, and that is what begins to become the subject matter of his artwork. So, for example, you have a beautiful watercolor from 1939 called Kitchen at Debutantes. And this is kind of the perfect example of White's 
early political awareness entering the work. Because uh, it's in some ways kind of a very classic art historical image. You have two female figures, one of whom is partially nude, and they're kind of framed in a window looking out. One holds a mirror. In some ways, these are very kind of classic Western art historical tropes of the female figure. But if you look at the title, Kitchenette Debutantes, a kitchenette was the name of the type of apartment that many poor African-Americans were forced to live in in Chicago because of essentially racist housing codes. So they were forced into these small apartments that were kind of divided up into inadequate spaces with, you know, shared lots of shared living quarters, and they were really problematic for a number of reasons. And there's a famous Chicago sociologist, Horace Caton, who does a whole study about housing codes in Chicago and how they shape race and and the treatment of, of different ethnic groups. And there's a, a whole study kind of put out at that time. And White knows Horace Caton. And in fact, Caton later owns this painting because this this titling of the work Kitchenette Debutantes is really a direct reference to what's going on in the housing situation of women like this. And it also a little bit changes the way we might perceive these women because they are tied to this kitchenette and because they are Black women working at a time when there weren't necessarily so many options options available to them, there's a strong suggestion that these are maybe prostitutes and that the association of debutante with the title is a little bit tongue in cheek, that this is the kind of uh, coming out, so to speak, that was available to women in his community at that time. So on one level, in terms of easel painting and, and drawings, these are the types of material that White is capturing in his work. And then a little bit on the other side of that, White becomes very interested in making murals. Like a lot of American artists at that time, he's really influenced by the Mexican muralists, people like Diego Rivera, uh, David Siqueiros, and Orozco, who are doing these big revolutionary images in buildings in Mexico. And White himself doesn't travel to Mexico until 1946, but he's certainly aware, you know, these images are available in New York, He's or in, not in New York necessarily, but in the United States, he's able to see them. He's definitely aware of them. And the idea of making a mural really coincides with his interest in African-American history. He's again aware really early on that there are a lot of important black historical figures who he is not learning about in school, he has no access to. He's really learning about them on his own through research in various Chicago public libraries and, and in other communities. So I think his interest is to recover that history in many ways and then to share it with the broadest possible audience through the visual arts, because, of course, that's what he's able to contribute to these ongoing discussions. And so to be able to work with the mural, which is a huge painting, that allows you to kind of describe things writ large and share them with huge audiences beyond people who would just be allowed to go to a museum, for example, or a gallery, is something that's really attractive to him. So he begins making mural paintings. His first one, which is actually on view here at MoMA right now, is made in 1939, Five Great American Negroes. And what's great about this painting, among many things, is the fact that the five figures it depicts were actually voted on by readers of the Chicago Defender, which is a really influential black newspaper in Chicago. So essentially, they do a poll of the five most important historical figures of time, I guess, and, and people respond to the poll, and then White puts them in his painting. So you get Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass. 
uh, George Washington Carver, Booker T. Washington. And then my favorite is, of course, Marian Anderson, who's not so much a historical figure at that moment, but a contemporary one who just a few months before White makes his painting sings on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial after she's denied access to the Daughters of the American Revolutionary Hall. Five Great American Negroes is uh, about a 14, 13 foot wide oil painting on canvas. You mentioned White's interest in Mexican muralists. As you all note in the catalog, uh, White wanted to go to Mexico during World War II and his draft board told him, oh, no, you don't. White made a a number of murals in the 1940s. The one, one you just mentioned, Contribution of the Negro to Democracy in America. How many murals does he make and and obviously because because you know uh, not all of them are on canvas where where are they? Can people still see them? Have they survived? So White makes during the course of his life five murals total, and the last one is actually also on canvas and available in Los Angeles. It's on um, permanent display in the uh, Mary McLeod Bethune Library, I think in Exposition Park in LA. So that's a mural he makes very much at the end of his life, kind of after the mural practice dominates his career. But that's kind of a late mural. Can I, that- can I just jump in for a moment? I, I'd like to note that the city of Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Public Library have absolutely no intention of, of selling that mural. And, and I think this is worth noting at a time when um, Chicago is trying to sell a mural, I mean, I'm sorry, a painting by white student and, and friend, Carrie James Marshall. Not only is, is, is Marshall upset that Chicago is, is selling the painting, but it, it, it's intervening in an historical lineage in which Marshall thinks of himself and, 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 and thinks is leading to his work. So I'm just happy to say that that mural is still in L.A. Sorry. Onward. Amazing point that I hadn't actually, uh, a connection I hadn't actually made until you brought it up. So thank you. No, that's, that painting, as far as I know, is there to stay. And it's, it's amazing and really beautifully situated in the library and really meaningful, I think, to see it there in the reading room. But so that's White's last mural. In the earlier part of his career, he makes four murals, only two of which are still extant. So the first one, which is on view at MoMA right now, normally lives in the Howard University Law Library, which is another kind of incredibly appropriate and meaningful place to have that work live. And White had a long relationship with Howard during his life and career. So yeah, there's something nice about where that that one has landed. After that, he makes one for kind of a major exhibition in Chicago about the black press. And it's not dissimilar in terms of composition to the one that that Five Great American Negroes. And that one only exists as far as we know on black and white reproduction. It's not clear what happened to it afterwards. I think it kicked around offices for a little bit and then eventually lost. So that's his second mural. The third mural is um, we have a, a study for it in the exhibition here. And that one has gone by a number of different titles, depending on what archival source you're looking at. I think for the exhibition, we we stuck with struggle for liberation, but it's also been known as the chaotic stage of the American Negro past and present, a lot of different titles. But the image was massive. And we actually have an archival photograph of White working on one of the two panels. And he is just dwarfed by this gigantic square, like 13 by 13 foot painting. It was really an incredible painting. And for me, it shows a huge leap in terms of his mastery of the mural technique. It's incredibly 
that the figures are incredibly dynamic in terms of both how they interact with each other and how they interact with this space. So unlike a work like Five Great American Negroes, which is kind of horizontal in this way and kind of proceeds in a very linear manner, these later murals become just crazy, twisting compositions of different figures doing different things. They're really quite incredible. But so that is his third mural, which unfortunately is also no longer extant. And it's not even clear actually whether he finished the second panel of it. We have images of him painting the first panel, and then we have an overall sketch of it in color. So we know ultimately what he intended it to look like, but I don't think he ever actually starts on the second panel. It's towards wartime and the WPA is starting to not exist anymore. So I think the funding and the space and the opportunity to complete it is is not made available. But his last mural from the 40s and the one that's still available and the only mural he makes directly on the wall of the building is at the Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia, which is a historically black college and university. White applies for a Rosenwald Fellowship, which was um, kind of a scholarship opportunity offered by, I think, a department store magnate in Chicago. But essentially, it was made to, um, it was intended to support African American artists in different endeavors. So, White applies for and wins a Rosenwald to go to Hampton and, and make this mural. And in fact, that he had intended to use the Rosenwald to go to Mexico. But as you pointed out, Tyler, he was not allowed to leave the country by the draft board. So, instead, he decides to go to Hampton to make the mural there. And he's there for about six months. And he makes this incredible mural that captures really kind of every major African-American historic figure you can think of in a, a big kind of square format mural that has these amazing enormous hands at the top of it with kind of this Diego Rivera-esque machinery and chains at the top. And then you have all of these figures kind of breaking free from that, from that oppression. So people like Paul Robeson, you get um, Sojourner Truth and Booker T. Washington again. You have Crispus Attucks, who was a soldier in the Revolutionary War. Um, you get cultural figures like, like Leadbelly, Huey Leadbetter, the singer who shows up in much of White's work. So um, just really an incredible statement and celebration of African-American power and history. And so that remains in, I think, Clark Hall. We'll have images of the extant murals as well as, I think, the archival photos on manpodcast.com. The war ends. Uh, White serves in the army, but not in any of the wartime theaters. When the war is over, he's living in New York. He, when he moves on from murals, how does his work change? I think I think it's it's you know easy to see that the mural experience stays with him in a lot of ways. But but how does how does he move on to other things and why? I think obviously murals are very special in terms of the scale they allowed artists to work at and the materials that, that were made available to people in terms of making them. So I think once that's no longer at White's disposal, he goes back to making more manageably sized drawings and prints and some paintings also in tempera, which is, of course, uh, the type of painted media he would have been using on the murals. But I think White was someone who was incredibly talented at making graphic images, both through line, through um, different ways of creating tone, through shading and things like that. So I think he's always drawn to the drawn image in many ways. And so that's something that is a constant, even while he's making murals, like many of the representations we have in the exhibition 
of his murals are in fact fully realized drawings, essentially studies for the final product. But on their own, they are just the most incredibly technically advanced drawings one has seen. And they really capture an incredible amount of power on their own. And that's divorced from kind of the overall composition of the mural. And so that's something he's still doing even while he's creating the murals. And I think that he returns to that in full force after the murals are no longer are no longer available to him. He also, you know, his style changes in that he's doing less kind of angular expressionistic figures. And that's something you see in and out of the murals a bit, but you certainly see in the independent works that he's making simultaneously with the murals. You get a lot of kind of, I don't know, expressionistic expressions in terms of the way the faces and and the forms are made, a lot of diagonals, a lot of kind of split cubistic-esque faces. I think as his work continues into the 40s and 50s, he begins to make more representational imagery, things that look more like um, real people. And certainly by the time you hit the 50s, they are incredibly, like, gorgeously rendered, very readable figures of people. And I think this is also very much in keeping with his desire to make the imagery accessible. There's a story that he tells in an archival interview, essentially about his mother not not really understanding what he's doing visually about him having a discussion with her and her not understanding you know why his figures look the way they do and him deciding at that moment that he wanted to change that you know that if his mother wasn't getting it then he had to essentially adjust his his visual style that way and of course he's also going to Russia to Eastern Europe around that time. And so he's seeing a lot of social realist imageries in the Eastern Bloc countries. And he's certainly, I think, influenced by those as well. So stylistically, the work becomes kind of rounder, more realistic in many ways around that time post-war. For me, the things that he really takes from from the warriors and the mural period are an interest in narrative and including stories and references to stories within paintings and drawings. And also who he chooses to depict. He is depicting, broadly speaking, working people, farmers, agricultural workers, singers. And, you know, think about what, what what's happening elsewhere in American art in, in the mid-1940s. I mean, you know, 1943 is when Clifford Still and Pollock, you know, kind of first hit big, large-scale American abstraction. And White is recommitting to narrative and to heroic figures with with pictures, drawings, and paintings that emphasize the hands of his figures, the, the, that with which they labor. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely right. It's, I question a little bit the, the narrative tag, because to me, these images are always, they're like a moment in time. And in many ways, they're, the images are very alluring in many ways. It's almost as, as if White is pushing you towards a specific narrative, but they're kind of timeless, which is what I think makes them so relevant and attractive to contemporary audiences. It's that the stories there kind of reach well beyond what it is that you're seeing depicted. The figures just seem kind of, I've been thinking about time travel of these figures a lot. The idea that they are just as comfortable in the 50s when White made them as they would be, you know, 20 years later, or even for viewers today. So unlike a figure like, you know, like his really well-known student, Carrie James Marshall, whose works often have a kind of, I don't know, more of a narrative in there. We, we often talk about White's work as being more kind of like, I don't know, emblematic 
in a way. You know, he's putting these incredibly fully realized figures out there for us to respond to. And, you know, it's it's um, like one of my favorite images in the exhibition is this beautiful picture of two women called Oh Mary, Don't You Weep. It's named after a, a traditional spiritual, which is also a really beautiful song, which is probably part of the reason why I like the image so much. But you just have these two women standing in in silence and you know we don't know where they are we don't know what they're thinking about but there's just so much richness there in terms of the expressions on their faces in terms of what they're wearing like the detailing on the clothing that white's figures wear is always so incredible even in these images of sometimes tremendous pain or upheaval you know he's taken the time to fix the lace on someone's collar or to draw a checkered pattern on, on a man's shirt. So there are these details there that I think lend, lend the images a bit of openness in terms of what we're reading into them, as opposed to telling us exactly what it is that we're looking at. Yeah. Oh, Mary, Don't You Weep is related to pictorially related and, and subjectly related. I'm sure there's a word there I'm missing. Gospel singers, a temper on board from 1951 and Our Land, a portrait uh, of uh, or a picture of a woman also from 1951 these these kind of heroic scaled figures in space one thing that i think white does in in all of these works from the 1950s is uh, in the murals figures are often receding into space and we talked about the swirling compositions in these paintings of the 1950s he is throwing stuff up against the picture plane he is putting these figures right as close to the viewer as much of these figures as close to the viewer as he can get them so White is best known as, of course, a muralist and a draftsman and a painter, but there are also photographs in this show. When does White pick up a camera? Uh, why and who does he photograph? So the largest body of photographs that we've come across date mostly to the late 40s and, and through the 1950s when he's living in New York. I don't actually know exactly when he first gains access to a camera. Um, it might have been... Even in Chicago, when he's affiliated with the Southside Community Arts Center, he's he's good friends with Gordon Parks, who is, of course, an incredibly well-known photographer. They are they are engaged in, in activities at the Southside Community Arts Center together. They're both good friends. So it's very possible that he had access to photography through the center and through Parks. But the majority of the photos that we've had access to, again, come from this moment in the late 40s and the 50s. And they exist mostly as personal snapshots. You know, there are clearly specific visual tropes that he likes, like positioning people by a window so that half of their face was lit in a specific way or capturing protests on the street or the way people were interacting with each other in public space. And actually, Deb Willis has written a beautiful essay for the catalog on White's photographic practice. But I've always seen it as being a bit different than his more formal kind of drawing and, and, and printmaking and, and painting practice. For me, it seems that the photographs were a way for him to process the world, to capture what he was seeing and, and to keep it with him so that he could then repurpose it later in other formats. And we see that because so many of White's photographs end up being the key sources for, for later work. So for example, the gospel singer painting that you mentioned is clearly based very specifically on images of musicians that White takes in Washington Square Park here in New York. And there's a whole series of different angles of this woman holding a guitar and, and men kind of standing around talking with her. 
And that one of those or several of those views end up very clearly influencing the composition and the structure of that painting. And we actually have here at MoMA, we have two of the photographs on view next to the painting. And you can actually see the, the paint splatter and the, the handling marks on the photos that show you just how closely he was looking at them while he was making the actual work. So for me, the photos were, were more of a tool for him as much as individual kind of artworks of their own. In 1956, White moves to Los Angeles. It was a move instigated by his doctor. White was tubercular and his doctor uh, thought he should live in a drier climate than New York. You mentioned earlier a little bit about, about White's move to Los Angeles and kind of the politics of it, but the work changes a lot in, in Los Angeles. How so and, and why? So I think I think that White's move to California is the first time that he's not living in a kind of condensed urban area like Chicago or New York. And I think the sheer fact that he could have space in which to work, that he could have a whole separate room in which to make his artwork, that he could have a library, that he could have regular access to nature and the outdoors had a huge influence on both his quality of life and also the type of work he made. He remains certainly as politically connected as he did in New York. You know, he's in LA and he's quickly becomes part of a community of people in Hollywood who have been targeted by the McCarthy hearings and by kind of the witch hunt for communists in America at that time. And so he's definitely remaining connected to the same kind of leftist politics that he has in New York. But his working conditions, I think, change his access to material. And of course, you know, many of the people he's come up with in New York have these kind of amazing careers that take off in California. So again, Harry Belafonte is becoming an incredible pop star and is living in LA. And that's some, you know, we have a great photo of, of Harry Belafonte on the beach in the exhibition. And that's something that the white took when they were just hanging out as friends in California. So I think the work to me always seems to open up a little bit, both in terms of scale, it gets much bigger in terms of commission opportunities. He's commissioned to make works for film, um, a beautiful triptych for the film, Anna Lucasta, which stars uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And Eartha Kitt. We have that on view in the exhibition as well. Uh, Belafonte is commissioning work both uh, of himself and of major figures like Mahalia Jackson. And so the work, the opportunities for the work, the tone of the work and its size really change. And for me around this time, White's incredible experimentation as an artist starts to pop up as well. I think because he has a little more security, kind of more, I don't know, more space and more time in LA. He begins to to play a little bit with how he's making images, with what he's using to make them. You start to see incredible things happen with how he's applying ink and, and charcoal and various materials to the illustration board that he preferred to work on. It's during this time in California that he develops this kind of oil wash technique, a kind of drawing with an oil wash that becomes his signature medium for the end of his career. I think he's really comfortable pushing himself visually at that point in his life. And that's a little bit because he's, you know, established, but also because he has more room and, and more opportunity to do so. He, he also allows a lot more air into the work. Figures are surrounded by more empty space, if you will. And this really, at least for me, spotlights how white draws 
body postures and how people stand and look and present themselves. And I think that's some of the most striking things about the L.A. work. Uh, you mentioned Harry Belafonte, of course. Uh, Belafonte was a major, major funder of the civil rights movement. And we see in the L.A. work white continuing to make work about major figures in black history, such as Harriet Tubman. But the work becomes, I think, more intense and almost more confrontational. There's a great large drawing called General Moses, Harriet Tubman, in which Tubman is not looking off to our left as she might have been in a lino cut 20 years earlier. She's staring us down. It's a 1965 drawing. I should have said that. Yeah, I love that draw. I mean, to me, and that's Harriet Tubman, just as she would have been, you know, marching in Selma with the civil rights movement. I, so I think, and this is a constant for white, this going back into history and pulling the accomplishments and, and also the, the fights of these historical figures and making them relevant to us in whatever contemporary moment we're in. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that image, Harriet Tubman is you know, a force to be reckoned with. And and what you're saying in terms of body posture and things like that, her feet could not be more solidly, you know, situated on the ground. And she's sitting on these two huge boulders, which are actually taken directly from from a photo of, I think, rocks in Africa. Like he's actually, he's found a rock formation that he feels is kind of the appropriate throne for her and kind of recreated it in the drawing. But yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example of his reinterpretation, his constant use of history. You also have beautiful drawing in the exhibition called Birmingham Totem. And that's very much White's allergy to the Birmingham church bombing in, I think, 1963, where four young African-American girls were killed in this horrific fire bombing of their church. And so whites made this kind of really heart-rendering image of a, a nude figure atop what's essentially a pile of rubble. It, it looks like, you know, broken church pews and, and timber from the walls and just, you know, brokenness. And you have this kind of nude, vulnerable figure sitting atop it all. But then the figure is dangling a plumb line from his hand over all of this kind of destruction. And of course, a plumb line would be something you would use to rebuild, to start again. So, I mean, the images become incredibly confrontational and, and much darker in many ways, but I think White never actually loses his faith in in humanity and the ability to to move forward and to make things better. I think he becomes more and more forthright about the challenges facing people and about, you know, the speed at which change is happening and about the many continuing issues that he's facing and that he's watched America face through kind of 40 years of of life. But I think that ultimate belief that things can change stays with all of the work. And frankly, that's made, for me at least, that's made this exhibition such an incredible project to work on in contemporary times. It's really his work, I think, still has a lot to teach all of us about about where we're going and, and how we can get there. I should have mentioned that the Harriet Tubman drawing is about six feet wide, about four feet tall. So it's just about life size. Birmingham Totem, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham was in September of 63. The drawing is dated to 64. You wrote for the catalog about Charles White, the teacher. White, like John Baldessari or, or going back, Perugino, is at least as well known and regarded as a teacher as he is as an artist, which is always the kind of thing that amazes me because doing one thing well is, is hard enough. And, and White 
did two things well and was committed to both really pretty equally throughout his life. So I want to talk about that a bit. And, and maybe we could start with uh, Victor Lowenfeld and who he was and what impact he had on White and his work. So Victor Lowenfeld is an Austrian refugee to the United States during World War II. He becomes well-known in Europe for essentially education theory that had to do with, I guess, with experience and maybe experiential learning is, is what we would call it today. And interestingly, he had, in fact, already had connections with various art institutions and people who are interested in art education before he emigrates to the United States. And I think it's, in fact, through those connections that he's able to to escape the war and, and come to the U.S. But Lowenfeld ends up teaching at Hampton, which is where White goes to do his mural. And, you know, he has very specific theories about, again, arts education and how to encourage people to develop their creativity. And, and one of his theories about black artists is essentially that black artists are so that black people in the United States are so down or so pushed down by the culture that it's it led them to make artwork that was essentially just repetitive or that uh, copying of, I guess, white Americans' artworks, and that if one was able to push them past that and encourage them to make work from their kind of inner lives as opposed to in reaction to kind of society, that that would be the way to push their creativity forward. You know, it's um, it's an education theory of its time. It's it's perhaps problematic on, on many levels now, but he, he really was very dedicated to supporting artists. And so when White goes to Hampton to make his mural, he is introduced, obviously, to Lowenfeld. And also, you know, Lowenfeld had an incredible art department at Hampton. He starts the art department there. He attracts a number of students to it. And then he gets, you know, these amazing artists to teach there. At the time, White is married to Elizabeth Catlett. So she, another wonderful artist. And so she's there teaching sculpture at the same time that White is making a mural and teaching mural mural painting. One of his students there is John Biggers, who goes on to have a tremendous mural career of his own. So that idea of making kind of an art department destination at an HBCU in Virginia and having artists like White and Catlett available to students is something that I think Lowenfeld is certainly responsible for. And and many then through his connections to the Museum of Modern Art, actually, he organizes an exhibition of the students' work here at MoMA in 1943. And so we have this beautiful, one of my favorite images of Charles White and Dorothy Miller in conversation, Dorothy Miller, the kind of famed MoMA curator in conversation in the private dining room here. And that image is taken on the occasion of White and Catlett being hosted here in, in honor of that exhibition from Hampton. I think we'll have a link on manpodcast.com to the MoMA Exhibition Archive website of that 1943 show. Possibly, probably as part of White's experience in, in Virginia, when he's back in New York, he becomes involved in something called the George Washington Carver School. What was it? Who was there? Um, and and does, this, does the school and White's work there itself have an impact on White's work? So the George Washington Carver School was one of several kind of alternative education institutions that pop up in New York at this moment in the late 40s and the 50s. Many of them are kind of shut down because of less, some more obvious than other connections with, with various communist organizations or because they identify with Marxist theories. Um, but essentially, they were community schools that were 
at heart aimed at making education and opportunities available to the working class, to people who wouldn't necessarily have access to more formal or, or more expensive education opportunities. And so the George Washington Carver School is opened in Harlem, and I think it is unabashedly a, essentially it has a bit of a Marxist curriculum, one could say. So um, Elizabeth Catlett in talking about the school essentially says, you know, we would teach things like dressmaking, but within the talking about how, you know, how to make your own dress is also kind of this undercurrent discussion of how more mainstream dressmaking or, you know, garment making situations would affected their lives and you know a little bit of a way of raising political consciousness even while dealing with very very everyday concerns and i think it was you know it was a way of empowering people of both giving them access to skills that they needed and also making them understand you know why their lives or, or what the outside forces that were shaping their lives were and how they could potentially change them and so you know what's so interesting is that white ends up teaching very kind of traditional life drawing classes at all of these at all of these institutions because there again is this belief that the making of art the making of your own image and and being able to channel your voice creatively is something that is as important as as many of these others you know learning to balance your checkbook or learning how to uh, to cook or make your own clothes so that idea of having this art curriculum offered at the same time as, you know, lessons on history or economics or anything like that, I think is very much embedded in these institutions and definitely aligns with White's personal approach to to his role as an artist and what art can do in society. You know, when we think of artists and teaching today, we think of colleges and universities. I think it's worth emphasizing that White, until until the end of his career, until he's at Otis, is is teaching younger people. He, he's teaching at schools that are kind of focused on 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 teenagers or on on what we would now call a vocational schools, such as when he's at the Workshop School of Advertising and Editorial Art in New York. But even when he's at Otis, he's opening up his classes, you know, somewhat, you know, not necessarily with the approval of the school administration, to anybody who wants to come. And and of course, that's how a young Carrie James Marshall ends up there. Uh, a story that uh, Marshall tells, I think, on his first appearance on on the Man Podcast. We'll have a link to that. So, I guess, in kind of conclusion, what about White's Otis experience is is important and and memorable? I think what became so clear to me in talking to a number of Charles White students, many of whom continue to be practicing artists all over America now is that he didn't, it was less about what he taught them artistically. Although obviously he was incredibly well-trained and he, he had an incredible work ethic and he expect people had to, you know, to learn how to do the work and to really do it. But I think the most influential thing he was able to impart to these students was the value of their own ideas and their own voice. So it was less about him teaching them to work the way he worked, but more about him teaching them how to make their best work, how to really learn how to take their ideas, take their visual goals and accomplish them. So, you know, for, for someone who is so dedicated to a really socially engaged representational practice his entire life, 
to be so open at that later part in his career to supporting a tremendous number of students working in different ways, I think is quite remarkable. And it really explains how you end up with, uh, you know, like uh, Carrie James Marshall's work, I think it's easier to see the connection there than perhaps the like the work of David Hammonds. Like the fact that Hammonds was a student who felt so supported by by White's work and teaching practice, and then of course goes on to have this incredible kind of conceptual career that's so different than White's. But that idea of kind of the work ethic and the seriousness and the, de- the dedication to making art that means something is something that all of his students come away with. And that I think must have just been remarkable in terms of having access to. You also have so many people who talk about White as making himself accessible. You know, he's pretty established at that point. He's a well-known artist. He's got gallery representation. He's in demand. And he was still, I think, really open to talk you know, he taught little kids on Saturdays at Otis. He would go to public school classrooms to talk about his work. He, you know, if you look at the papers, um, which are held in the Archives of American Art, there are endless letters for people thanking him for, you know, showing up at their church benefit or or speaking to their third grade class. I mean, just he his schedule must have been insanity. Uh, but he was it was so important to him to to make himself as well as the work accessible that I think it had a tremendous and lasting influence. Yeah, I don't mean to disagree with any of that, but I do think that there's one way he does have a clear impact on on artists in LA at the time, and that's in his insistence on the figure. You know, in Hammond's work in in this in the in the late sixties and early seventies, the figure is present. So too in you know, it's the bedrock of of Carrie James Marshall's practice. It's there in Betty Sar. In in Sengen Nangudi's work, it's it, it it's referenced and is sometimes present, and in an LA art world of the time that could not have been less interested in figurative or representational work, I think I think White's influence in that way stands out a bit. Absolutely, no, I think that's very true. And in fact, you know, of the students that I spoke to that I write about in my catalog essay, all of them have remained have mostly a figurative practice. I, I almost feel like. Maybe figures like Hammonds are a bit more of the outlier in terms of choosing a different way to make work. But yeah, I mean, Carrie, that was after. I mean, you know, that's after Hammonds leaves L.A. mostly. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, Carrie in his preface to the catalog talks about, you know, arri- finally being old enough and having enough credits to attend Otis to study with Charles White and being aware that everything he was searching for in art school had kind of been thrown out the window. This very kind of traditional you know, figurative tradition based on life drawing and and almost kind of craft based in terms of learning skills and, and learning how to create things of that being, yeah, very much not in vogue at the, at the moment. Um, and not just in LA, but really in the art world across the board. You mentioned a Carrie James Marshall essay in the catalog. It's the first essay. It's titled A Black Artist Named White. We'll have a link to uh, getting the catalog, which is absolutely terrific, on manpodcast.com. Esther Adler, thanks so much. Thank you. On the opening night of the exhibition Sally Mann, A Thousand Crossings at the Getty Museum, renowned photographer Sally Mann discusses her book Hold Still, a memoir with photographs. Named one of the best books of 2015 by the New York Times, Washington Post, and National Public Radio, Hold Still reveals her fascination with family, mortality, and the landscape of the American South. Get tickets and learn more about this free November 16th event 
at getty.edu slash 360. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, the exhibition People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready, Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery, among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery. A work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas Gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the Medieval Gallery, all at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. Welcome back. My next guest is artist Alida Cervantes. Her work's now on view in Being Here With You, Estando Aquí Contigo, at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. The show presents the work of 42 artists and collectives living and working in the San Diego and Tijuana region. It's at MCASD's Downtown Jacobs Building, and it's on view through February 3, 2019. The exhibition catalog is available at the museum. Concurrently, Cervantes' work is on view in Hello Hero, Hero Hello, Hello Hero, Hello Hello, at Efrain Lopez Projects in Chicago. That show is up through November 10th. Alida Cervantes, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. One of the first things visitors to the MCASD Biennial see when they walk into the museum is is your two paintings. Before we talk about you know how, uh, the history behind them and and, and why and, and 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 how you came to them, who are the women in those two paintings? They are two saints. Well, the the titles of the of the paintings are. Okay. Santa Rufina and Santa Dorotea. And they're based on some saint portraits by Surbaran, the Spanish painter. So I was looking at those paintings and wanted to do my own versions of those saints. Why were saints interesting? Is it a Catholic thing? Is it something else? Yes, it's a very Catholic thing. It has a lot to do with how I grew up. I mean, I grew up Catholic, not extremely Catholic, but... I was interested in the way that Catholicism, at least in Mexico, determines a lot what the standards for for womanhood. And so I was interested in kind of these these images of women that are like in some sort of religious, spiritual connection with God. And it just represented a lot about the way that I had been brought up. And so I just wanted to play around with them and turn them into something else that I was more comfortable with. So there are lots of ways you play with gender, Catholic tradition, painting history and all of that. And so I want to ask about a couple of those ways. The first and most obvious way is is the size of the paintings. They are 
about seven feet tall. When I think of, of, you know, say Spanish paintings of saints from, say, the 16th or 17th century, I usually think of kind of modest-sized paintings that might have gone in a home or in a corner of a church as a kind of devotional. Your women are much bigger, almost as if insisting on the primacy of of women who were saints almost in place of the men the Catholic Church venerated in a different way. What about the size in these paintings became important to you? I think for me the size has to do just with my regular painting practice. I really, really like to paint huge paintings or or if I if, if I'm not making huge paintings, then I'm making tiny paintings. So I think that that's more than anything what it was. I wasn't really thinking about making them huge. It's just I think it's more about me and wanting to make a huge painting. I don't know. Maybe I have an inferiority complex or something. <laughs> you mentioned the smaller paintings you make. They're kind of more in the 19th century American oil sketch tradition, and 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 the brushwork in the big paintings is is very large it's very you know it's very present and forward and kind of insists on a on a certain primacy when i think of of say those thurbaran uh Zerberan paintings from from art history you know his surfaces are super neat super tidy super finished super flat and and you rejected that so why again i think it has to do with my interest in terms of paint application and being being able to be very bold in my brushstrokes, when I made those paintings, I was I was still in a period where I was working off of collages that I would do on Photoshop, and so I was creating these collages, and then I would pick the ones that I wanted and make paintings out of them. And uh, one of the things that I was interested in was combining different surface qualities on the on the painting so on these paintings I have some of the some of the painting is done with with acrylic spray paint and then so it's kind of flat and kind of diffused and then I really wanted to contrast that with with thick brush stroke work and I was trying to I mean I was interested in like the difference of those two qualities which mirrored the idea of the of the different women figures that I was combining in the in the paintings because I was combining I was working off the the Surubaran saints but I was make I was combining them with these these little figurines from the south of Mexico from Oaxaca there's these artists that make these figurines of they call them chicas de la noche so like women of the night so it's not clear whether they they are prostitutes or they work in, in cabarets or, or what they do. But the, the qualities of these, of these Mexican figurines are very different to the saints. And so I was in the type of paint that I was using, I was also trying to create a contrast there between very thick brushwork and very flat spray paint. The surfaces of these paintings are, are a lot of fun. Anybody who, who likes painting is just going to get lost in the, in the surfaces. St. Dorothy is wearing a mask. Where does the mask come from? So when I was doing the collages on Photoshop, I have like a huge collection of, of images that I collect from the internet. And I have them all sort of uh, organized into different 
categories. And one of the categories that I have is masks, like Mexican folk masks. And I was very interested in the idea of the mask of hiding a, a certain identity. And that mask is probably just, I was also interested in masks that wrestlers, Mexican wrestlers wear. So I think that that mask is actually like a mask of a wrestler. And I probably changed the colors, but that's what it's based on. Uh, luchadores, the Mexican luchadores. You've also made work that addresses casta paintings. Casta paintings are both a fascinating art history, but also that they, you know, they refer to a, a, a layered colonial, multi-continental cultural history too. What about casta paintings attracted you? Um, why why were they something you wanted to address? I think it had to do a lot with my with my personal story, the way that I grew up. I became very interested in, in power relations since I was very young because I grew up in a white upper-class family. At the same time, we had servants in the house of, you know, of different race. And this created like different intimate power relations in my house besides, you know, the fact that you know, I grew up in sort of a macho household. And being a white woman in Mexico also meant a certain thing. And at the same time, crossing the border to San Diego, it meant another thing, being a white Mexican. So I grew up with these like different racial, class, gender identities that were constantly shifting. And so when I saw the Casta paintings for the first time, it, it, I really... I thought that in the paintings, it was like a, a resume of my of my life in a certain way. And also at the time I was involved in sort of my own Costa relationship. I was in a relationship with a Afro-Cuban man. And so that was my interest in the Costa painting that it's just, they just said so much about the way that, that I had been brought up. And it was interesting to me to think, wow, it's, you know, I grew up in the, you know, I was born in 1972 and these paintings were made in the 17th and 18th century. And I just thought to myself, wow, not not that much has changed. <laughs> Still kind of the same thing. That's part of what's interesting about the paintings is that they, your, your Costa paintings, is that they mash time periods together. That, you know, they are contemporary paintings with references to you know, painting in the last 50, 50 years from kind of de Kooning to, to David Park to, you know, lots of other Peter Doig. Was the idea of, I mean, you know, addressing 300 years of history in a single artwork or a single series of artworks is the kind of thing that either artists really like to do or are really daunted by. What made it something you wanted to do? Why Why was that historical breadth attractive because i mean again it had to do so much with with not only how i was brought up but what i was what i was still living you know as a woman i didn't really follow the the standards for what i what i should have done you know regarding the social standards of of a place like tijuana and i think for me 
making these paintings was a way of just kind of trying to write a different story. Like the Casta paintings are very structured, you know, it's an interracial couple, they have a child, uh, the woman is seems like she's very sweet, the guy's probably taking charge of everything. And it just seemed like I wanted to make some paintings and just try to break that structure and turn it into something else. Yeah, to make something art historically confusing, wherein a viewer would immediately, even if they don't know the history of, of Costa paintings, would still recognize an address of present and past going on in front of them. Yes, and also another thing that I was interested in is like the sexual aspect of the paintings, because you know all the paintings depict an interracial couple and then an offspring. So obviously they're referring to well, these people had sex and had a baby, and but you know the Spaniards during that time, they didn't really want people to be intermixing. It wasn't like in the United States that they had all these laws against it. So people did it anyway in in Mexico, even they weren't even though they weren't really supposed to. So I was interested in the in this idea that sexual attraction was something that was breaking these imposed social barriers from the people that were in power. And so I was I was interested in the sexual aspect, but also on the aggressive aspect of what what went on between these couples and, you know, the whole with colonization and everything. So and also, you know, I grew up, the, certain things about the way that I grew up were very violent in a way. You know, the idea of, I cross the border every day and I've crossed the border most of my life on a daily basis from when I was little. Like, for example, me as a white, as a white woman on the Mexican side, I'm, I'm very vulnerable to a certain degree, but I'm also very powerful. But then... If you come to the Amer- if I come to the American side, suddenly I'm maybe less powerful because suddenly I, you know, I I become a beaner or something when, or I'm made fun of, you know, I'm I'm talking about when I was younger, because we would cross the school, we would cross the border to come to school, so, you know, in regards to the casa paintings, it just I just felt like I was like looking at my life. Like my whole life was just in these paintings, was being represented in these paintings, and I wanted to, I wanted to play around with it. I wanted to play around with the characters and, as if they were dolls, and create my own, my own stories. There is a little bit of dolls in them. Now that you mention it, the figures are kind of, you know, they're kind of pasted like dolls would be placed in a room in a, in a toy house. Yeah. Yes, the figures in the in my Gasta paintings come from different sources. Some of them are dolls. Some of them are actual figures from the original Casta paintings. Some are Mexican folk figures. So there's all kinds of different sources for those figures. But literally when I was making these collages on Photoshop, I really felt like I was playing with dolls and having fun with it, like, what's this one going to do to this one? And what face is this one going to make? And like that. And, and I should point out, you're going beyond... So, so you're, you're taking figures from places outside of Costa painting, too. I mean, there's, there's Michelangelo David in one of the paintings. Yes. There's Barbie, and, you know, there's little Mexican folk figures. So, yes, I'm playing... I'm, 
I have a lot of different sources for my for my figures in those paintings. We've talked a lot about history and present, but not a lot about painting. Your paintings are are big brushy, lots of loaded brush, lots of just the pure seductiveness of, of big, rich paint. Why is that way of playing with and using and wielding paint of interest to you? Is that in art history or somewhere else? It comes out of just, I really enjoy it. It's It's kind of a pleasure thing. It looks like it. Yeah, it's like, if I ask you, like, what do you like to eat? Well, you really like, I don't know, cake. Well, I just really like how thick paint feels. I really enjoy it. And actually, my painting has become more and more, more and more just like cupcake frosting. You know, my, my Santa, my saint paintings that I did, the latest ones that are actually very small. You can see them on my website. They have really, really, really thick impasto. And and for me, it's just it's purely a a pleasure thing. I just I really enjoy it, and I think that's where my painting is going more and more. It's I'm becoming a little bit less in in so much in the conceptual. I'm still interested in the in the ideas, of course, but I'm becoming much much more focused in in developing a painting with paint and and having that having the experience be pleasurable and not just an exercise of creating an image we'll we'll have a link to your website of course on on manpodcast.com but the i mean the paint almost looks like a relief and in saint dorothy the painting we we started by talking about i mean the dress is right out of you know titian or rubens or van dyke you know just these big rich sections of textile you know where you can where, where a viewer can just picture a brush moving oil uh, paint around a canvas just because it's fun and because it's almost mimicking the movement of fabric yes and in, in parts of the paintings i'm also painting with with a palette knife and just like grabbing the paint and just like slapping it on there which is fun everybody should try it alita cervantes thanks so much for speaking with me Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.